week of February 19th, 2023, this is Showbiz Sandbox 608, the podcast that brings you all the dirt on the news making headlines around the entertainment world in Los Angeles. I'm Jay Sperling Reich. And at the Variety Playhouse in Atlanta, Georgia, I'm Michael Giltz. Oh boy. Why are you in Atlanta, Georgia now? Why do you always sound depressed when I'm somewhere? Because you, you get around more than I do, and uh, you know I don't always believe that you're in the places you say you are. You were just at the airport. That's something. I was at the airport. Sending that, somebody that else away. <laughs> That's true. I was Just at, getting back from the airport. I was at the Variety Playhouse in Atlanta over the weekend, seeing my first concert in more than three years. So did that, you, when, when you were in Georgia, did you stop by and say hello to our friend Jimmy Carter? I did not, though he is in hospice care now, so... Uh, you know, it won't be long, I guess, but, you know, well, uh, well overdue for the Hollywood movie adaptation or TV miniseries. Waiting for that. The days of the uh, peace accord or, the, you know, the, the Camp David peace accord, or maybe when he went to the mountains and had his troubled night of the soul and came back and said, we all need to wear sweaters. There's a lot to do in his presidency, and he'll certainly, history is starting to judge him better and better, I think. Uh, he's an interesting presidency and by far our best post-president president oh yeah without a doubt uh, uh, everybody else could take a uh including barack obama could take notes from what he's done with his life post-presidency and bill clinton you know everybody could learn from jimmy carter but there you go he, i was did not go and say hi but i did see the mavericks in concert at the variety playhouse it was great i parked across the street i stood right in front of the stage right where i wanted people didn't jostle me everybody was pleasant uh the show was really good two hours tight done ended with two of their best songs that i wanted to hear walked out the door was back in my car and driving towards the highway three minutes after the show was ended so pretty much magical night and it was great to see some live music again so if that were set in Los Angeles, it would be the exact opposite of everything you just said. They wouldn't play the songs you wanted to hear. You would have had to have parked about three and a half miles away. You'd have to take a shuttle in, and about nine hours later, you'd finally make it back to your car after the show. <laughs> well, that's why sometimes it's easier just to stay at home. And that's, of course, what a lot of people did on Super Bowl Sunday. We finally have the numbers in. 113 million people watched part of the Super Bowl. It's the third highest regularly scheduled program in history number one and number two other super bowls basically it was a couple hundred thousand off the all-time record of 114 million so uh, no surprise there but it is a surprise every week about what we're going to talk about tell us Berling. well uh, this week on showbiz sandbox i'm going to surprise you oh yeah we didn't skip an episode no. But it actually, it feels like it because there's a lot to talk about. Mm -hmm. Award season is getting serious with what, you know, what we have the Directors Guild of America. They announced their awards and the BAFTAs sending mixed signals about who the front runners are or are they? Are they sending mixed signals? We'll explain. The box office in India was very strong in 2022. Thank you, RRR. And Russia is doing bang up business thanks to its best January box office in history. I know that sounds like it should not be true, but it is. Who's helping Russia? A lot of Hollywood movies. We'll also explain that. Meanwhile, we predicted the attacks by Florida Governor Ron DeSantis against Disney would gain him a lot of headlines, but in the end, change very little in the Sunshine State. And that's exactly what's happening. Plus, Roald Dahl has a big, fat problem. And there's a key word in there, okay? His books are being softly edited to take out words like, well, guess what? <laughs> Fat, That's the, that was the key word. Uh, my question is, is Matilda now woke? 
because, you know, anyway. On Inside Baseball, we'll look at all the changes roiling television, disappearing TV shows, falling revenue, rising programming costs. It's not easy being peak TV. Of course, during Big Deal or Big Whoop, we'll discuss some of the week's top headlines. But first, as always, we turn it over to entertainment journalist extraordinaire Michael Giltz to fill us in on last week's box office. And indeed, it was being changed as we went to air. <laughs> That's right. Uh, note to self, do not eat a potato chip before you begin the podcast. Not a good mix. Uh, we are looking at box office from around the world for the week ending February 19th. We've got a link to Calm Score in our show notes, but we pull info from everywhere, from a Bollywood movie website. Yes, it's a specifically Bollywood movie website, not an Indian movie website. If you people have a better website, tell us. We pull info from Ent Group, which provides info on Chinese releases. We'd love a better website for Japan and some of the other major markets like South Korea. We also get info from Variety and Hollywood Reporter and everybody else. Wikipedia is a great source of box office on individual films. That really gets updated all the time, and it's it's accurate. It's good. So it comes from all over the world, and the number one movie is Marvel. Ant-Man and the Wasp, Quantumania, grossed $225 million worldwide. Not very good. But everybody went to see it anyway. That seems to be the hot take on the movie. But that is a big, big film all over the world. It's the best opening for one of the three Ant-Man films. It opened softer in China than people expected, which is still the number two market in the world, I believe. And even though it was one, number one for a little while, now it's number two, you know, you know. Um, but it's, it's uh, people say, oh, well, it's sci-fi, it's this, it's that. But the fact is, they had the runway to promote the movie. There should be some anticipation. It just didn't do as well as they hoped, but it is doing well in the rest of the world. And $225 million is about its budget. So good start. <laughs> At number two around the world is a record setter, Avatar, The Way of Water. $29 million this week. It's now the third biggest grossing movie of all time worldwide, passing up Titanic by just millions of dollars yet again. They're going back and forth, but this time, Avatar is probably ahead to stay. It's at $2,243,000,000 worldwide. Uh, Titanic is just a hair behind that. Uh, Puss in Boots, The Last Wish, that made $28 million and it blew past the $400 million mark. The Wandering Earth 2, going back to China, uh, $27 million this week. It's at $575 million worldwide. Titanic coming off the Valentine's Day weekend, still making money, $26 million this week. It'll probably drop dramatically next week or maybe lose a lot of screens to be more accurate, but you know, it made good money in those two weeks. And back the movie is like 25 years old. I know someone who saw it for the first time. She's in her 60s. She just never saw it. And Linda said, I've never seen it. And she's like, I really liked it. And she said, she asked, but why didn't he just get on the board with her? We're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's been discussed. Everybody talks about that. Why didn't Jack get on the board with her? Or she's like, or get on another piece of, you know, floatage. My God, there were dead bodies. I would just shove somebody off and climb onto something else and say, hey, I'm over here. I'll see you. Over, I'll see you later. Okay. Good luck. <laughs> but no. So <laughs> yes, you know. there was room on the door for her, for Jack. And that's right. There was. And, and this is a, a woman who's the target audience for a film like Titanic. She goes to the just somehow had missed it and she watched it for the first time and she really liked it. People are really liking Full River Red. That's the Zhang Yimou film in China. Uh, I'm looking forward to seeing it. $24 million this week, $650 million worldwide. 
Magic Mike's Last Dance. That had some good holds around the world, even though the reviews have been pretty brutal. That made $19 million this week. It's just under $40 million worldwide. Then we have a French comedy. Uh, This is the second week of release. We missed it last week because France is... Proven tricky lately, that Asterix and Obelix movie, that finally popped up out of nowhere. And Alibi.com 2, this is a French comedy about a company that provides alibis for cheaters. You cheat on your partner and you need an alibi, they've got one for you. I don't know why Hollywood hasn't remade that yet. (laughs) Maybe they're just too busy setting up the company. But anyway, it made about $10 million, maybe, or probably not, but it's at $16 million in its second week of release total, and hopefully we'll keep an eye on it down the road. Knock at the Cabin, the Shyamalan film, that made another $10 million. That's about to hit $50 million, another profitable film for M. Night. Deep Blue Sea, this is an animated film in China, That maybe made um, $10 million. It's at $122 million worldwide. Then there's 80 for Brady. That made another $8 million. And then Asterix and Obelix, The Middle Kingdom. We've been trying to track this movie. It's in 11 countries. You would think a movie in 11 countries would not be able to travel under the radar, but it is. It made maybe $7 million this week. It's at $35 million worldwide, and it cost $70 million to make. The movie is falling hard and fast. No wonder people don't want to talk about it. But it was Valentine's Day. That's why we saw Titanic. That's why we saw Magic Mike out of a really good hold, maybe. And in China, like seven new movies, nine new movies, how many movies? Nine new movies started opening up this week, starting on Valentine's Day. But people were kind of tired from the massive New Year's festival and all the movies they were seeing then. So most of the new movies really didn't catch any fire. But Behind the Blue Eyes opened to $7 million. Um, Another movie called, oh, Ping Pong of China has been opened up for two weeks. That's at $11 million total. And this is not a good translation, but could you don't leave me? Could you don't leave me? Maybe that is right. That made about $3 million. So none of those two Valentine's... I think it's just a poor translation. It might be, but could you don't leave me? Also works if you say it in a certain way. You know, don't leave me. Could you don't leave me? You know, as opposed to could you leave me, which I say to Sperling all the time. Uh, But he can't quit me. Um, looking for any more news, the first slam dunk is still making a lot of money in South Korea. The Japanese animated film is now at $107 million worldwide. Hidden Blade, a Chinese film that we've also lost a little track of, that's at $130 million worldwide. In India, we have a new release. Shazada is an action film. It made about $4 million this week. It's a Hindi remake of a Telugu film. And yet, it's the Telugu film made a lot of money, made about $34 million. This one cost more, I mean, cost less, which seems unusual to me. You would think the Hindi market, maybe it would be bigger, have a bigger budget if you're going to remake the movie. But no, it was a lower budget. So they'll have it made about, cost about $10 million to make. We'll have to see where it ends up. But it opened kind of weekly. Is there as much a demand or need to remake films that have already played in India? I would imagine that trend would slow down a bit just because, you know, every part of the Indian market seems to be doing well. The Telugu and the Tamil market and the Canada, they all seem to be able to create big hits that can appeal to everybody. So maybe there just isn't this same demand anymore. But look, it's still happening. And Patan, of course... That's one of the big hits of the last few weeks. Star Shah Rukh Khan back in a film for the first time in five years. That's at $119 million worldwide. Uh, Liam Neeson had a film called Marlowe, open to very poor reviews and sort of quietly at $3 million. And Winnie the Pooh. 
Blood and Honey. Okay. This is a Winnie the Pooh horror flick. It made $2.5 million its opening week. It got a lot of press because it's Winnie the Pooh and a horror flick. And this is because it is now in the public domain. And okay, I'll admit it. We're excited when things come into the public domain. It doesn't mean good things will always follow. <laughs> this is what happens. You know, aren't all the best Winnie the Pooh movies horror films? <laughs> I mean, that Tigger guy can be scary when he's bouncing around. I had a really good weekend. I saw the Mavericks in concert on Friday. And Sunday night, I saw Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon in a movie theater. It was basically a private screening. The movie was reissued in a newly uh, remastered print or something, or they gussied it up somehow. What a great movie. I saw it for the first time at Cannes. Loved the movie, and the chance to see it on the big screen was really special, and uh, I really had a great time at that. But India had a good time all year long. They had their second biggest box office of all time, $1.28 billion, just about $30 million behind the all-time record of 2019. So the Indian box office is on fire. Films, you know, performed or dubbed into the Hindi language took 33% of the market. Telugu took 20%. Tamil, 16%. Hollywood gobbled up about 12% of the market. So it's cool to see that there's a lot of healthy diversity in the Indian market. We're trying or tending to talk about just Indian films and not focus on, oh, whether it's Hindi or Telugu, but it's still important and interesting to point it out. For example, the highest grossing film of the year was in the Canada language, and that's KGF Chapter 2. Um, so that's the good news. The bad news is that emissions are fairly significantly down, about 10%. The emissions yeah. or ticket sales, what they call footfalls, I really like that, <laughs> footfalls, only 892 million tickets were sold last year. For the last five years before the pandemic, they were, they were about a billion, a billion tickets sold a year. They were always above 990 million tickets. So this is a significant 10% drop, but they made up for it because ticket prices rose to $1.44. That's how you make more money with less tickets sold. How are they doing it in Russia? That's what I'd like to know. They're doing great, at least at the box office, and at least at some box office, because not every cinema is showing Hollywood films. But some cinemas are showing them, as we report on Celluloid Junkie all the time, and they're getting pirated copies of certain movies. And then, of course, you have the problem of international sales, where you have like everything everywhere all at once, as an example, uh, which was released here by A24, but of course it was sold internationally by other people to a distributor in Russia prior to the, the war in the Ukraine. So it's being out. legally sh shown in Russia. Yes. And there are legal films being distributed in Russia by Pathé, for instance, from France. Right. But you're implying that everybody would like this to stop if they could. And that's not really the case. A lot of people are happy to do business in Russia when there's money to be made. STX has movies in Russia. Lionsgate has movies in Russia. There are a variety to the story on this. About 140 Hollywood movies were released in Russia in 2022. Lionsgate said in a, in a statement, look, we're just honoring the contracts that we signed before the war, you know, and if the company's not facing international sanctions, you know, you know, so people are well, happy they are to facing do international sanctions. No, no, not every, not every, not every company. They're, they're saying the companies we are working with have not been singled out to face international sanctions. And there's no international ban on Hollywood releasing movies in China and Russia. They've just chosen to do so. So, True. Yes. right. So uh, they are not facing international sanctions. That's, but there's money to be made. And I don't think everybody, you know, 
plane is in Russia. Shotgun wedding with Jennifer Lopez is in Russia. France is doing a lot of business in Russia and defending it. Russia is their third biggest market in the world for French films. And that's what it was in 2022. And they're like, ah, what's the problem? We're happy. And they make the whole story. Oh, you know, we're really opening minds and Putin wants to not see foreign films in Russia. He, you know, that's diversity in the world and he doesn't want us to be heard there. So we're really defying him by making money in Russia during the war. So that's their argument, uh, whether you agree with it or not, that is happening. Now, if these companies are sincere- Well, also keep in mind that, keep in mind that companies like STX Entertainment are no longer actually owned in the United States. They're owned overseas. Well, again, there's nothing in the US banning you from, from operating in Russia. I yeah, mean, true. there's no, there's no law. And, and I know I'm going to be corrected. I know the Najafi group is, is they have their headquarters in Phoenix, but they, mm-hmm. you're saying you know, legally they're not a U.S. company. Well, they, yeah. I mean, well, no, I don't know, care if the company's based in France or the United States or Canada or, you know, Australia, uh, you know, we'll, we'll know if these companies are sincere saying they don't want their movies being shown in Russia. If we see these numbers drop off of cliff in 2023, my prediction is they'll just keep on quietly, you know, being shown in the country. Um, but and, maybe and I guess my question, well, a couple things. My question would be uh, twofold. One, Lionsgate doing business there. I do wonder if they're actually doing business or the films that they released in North America. They said elsewhere. they're honoring their contracts that they signed before the war. They're saying we're simply honoring the contracts that were already in place. As if they couldn't do anything like saying we want to break this contract or, you know, as if their hands were tied. But that's their, that's their statement. They are releasing Well, now, I don't know if we've discussed on, on, on Sandbox here, but we've talked, I think we may have talked about the fact that the new law in Russia that they're proposing mm-hmm. is that you can just break copyright. You can just oh, say, yeah, we, you know Oh, yeah, we what? discussed this, yes. Yeah. Which may mean so, people all the more reason why they say, well, we might as well release it. They're going to show it anyway. That would be their right. next argument. And then, of course, there'd be no sanctions <laughs> following that right. to its uh, logical extreme. But that's what's happening in Russia. We'll keep an eye on it. Plane is playing in Russia. And guess what? It's doing well all over the world. There's going to be a sequel. It's called, not Plane 2, it's going to be called Ship, which means there will be endless possibilities for this franchise. Train, car, <laughs> it'll go on forever. Like die hard, die harder, die hardest. No, you're well, really no, dying hard. Well, that's different, but yeah, okay. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, it's award season, and the Emmys are tweaking their rules. What did they do this week? I have no idea. Oh, well, actually, no, I do know. Uh, I think it has to do with documentaries, right? That's right. You can double dip again. For a brief minute, the Emmy said, look, you want to go for the Oscar, go for the Oscar, but you're not going to go for the Emmys too. So if you submit to the Oscars, if your movie is available on the Oscar platform for people to stream and watch because you want to be winning an Oscar, that's fine. But then you cannot submit your film for an Emmy. They've now tweaked that, I think, in a reasonable way. They could have even gone for the long list. But what they said was, look, fine. You want to go for an Oscar? If you're eligible, go for it. But... If you make the short list, if you get nominated for an Oscar, then we are definitely not going to put you up for an Emmy, which I think is certainly That's reasonable. Fair. And I think it's a better choice than what they were doing before. You know, there's a lot of small documentaries need attention anywhere they can get. If they have a dream of getting an Oscar nomination, they want to go for it. And if they don't get that, it's not like they think the Emmys are, you know, a poor second choice. What we wanted to avoid was movies winning the Oscar and the Emmy when it felt like, well, come on, you know, make a choice. It's already so, won the Oscar. Of course, it's going to win the Emmy. You want to talk about like a, a marketing campaign, win an Oscar. Let's see if you win an Emmy next. Yeah. Of course so you that, 
original. That, that means movies that tried to go for the Oscar but didn't get a nomination on the shortlist, like The Territory, one of the best films of the year, that Bowie, Doc, Moon Age, Daydream, and Descendant, which is on Netflix, they are all eligible and welcome to submit themselves for some Emmy love. So I think that was a good tweak. Um, I wish the Art Directors Guild would make a tweak, and I wish all the guilds would make a tweak and have one award for just the top prize. That's cool to have all these different genres and recognize it's a different challenge to make art direction for a period film, a contemporary film, a fantasy film, and so on. But you need to pick a top kahuna. You need to say the best art direction overall is this. And that's what they're not doing. But they did give out some awards. Who did they honor? Well, this year, I think it was, well, it was Babylon, Everything mm-hmm. Everywhere All at Once, Glass mm. Onion, A Knives Out Mystery. I love saying <laughs> that. Uh, Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio, which shouldn't get art direction because it was all drawn. No, they it wasn't. Pro- it I'm was kidding, stop I'm motion. kidding, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. It is art direction. I, know, I, just, yeah. I love setting Michael off just by uh, saying things like that. I know it's like it's... What uh, I didn't understand was that um, uh, the award for Everything Everywhere was described as for best fantasy art direction. Well, like, I mean, does that mean sci-fi had a different category of art direction? Because those are different I things. I don't, I don't think so, but I don't think they know what they're talking about. But, you know, the Art Directors Guild is cool. So they've got four movies now that they've said, we like these. But that doesn't really help people if they want to know what you're really supporting and loving. They should have put their money down and picked one of those four movies and named it the best art direction of the year. The DGA did that, didn't they? They named their best director of the year. Yes, they said... We do have a best director of the year. It's two of them named the Daniels. <laughs> you, don't you want to vote for him just to say the Daniels? You know, you get to say who won the Daniels. It's easy. It's simple. And you have to worry about last names. Yes. Yeah, so the yeah, Daniels uh, won everything for- everywhere all at once, of course, is what they directed. Right. Uh, right. Uh, Swiss Army Man was their first film. Uh, big uh, commercial directors, music video directors. Mm-hmm. For documentary, uh, Sarah Dosa won for Fire of Love. Very good so film. I liked it a lot. I don't know how that and they and Werner Herzog both have a movie about the same people, the same story, the same footage. I don't know the story of how they both got access to the footage and made a movie out of it. So uh, if somebody knows- in the public domain. It's not in the public domain, but if if you know what the reason is or how they both ended up making a sort of homage to this volcano couple, volcano couple, uh, tell us. Volcanoes are a hot topic right now. No, hey. they could tell us. They could tell us. <laughs> no, but I still have to get my joke. Oh, that was good. That was good. How can they tell us? Um, in any case, you can you can write to us, dirt at showbizsandbox.com. That's D-I-R-T at showbizsandbox.com. You can also call and leave us a voicemail. The number to call is 888-567-SAND. That's 888-567-7263. We're also on Twitter, where our handle is at showbizsandbox. And we're also on Facebook. Facebook.com slash showbizsandbox is where you can like our page. I interrupted Sperling before he could also tell us that the Best first-time director or best breakthrough director is Charlotte Wells for After Sun, starring the very talented Paul Mescal. Um, those three movies, Everything Everywhere All at Once, Fire of Love, and After Sun are all three of my favorite films of the year. They're all on my long list of the best movies of the year. So good job by them. Now, the Directors Guild were criticized. All the top nominees for best feature were men. On the bright side... Six of 11 awards that they gave out went to women, including Best Miniseries, Best First-Time Director, Best Documentary. Those are big awards, so that's very cool to see. That certainly counts, doesn't it? Yes, it does. And uh, I'm just looking here because I, I, oh, yeah, Navalny won. I saw that. Uh, 
No, ba- Navalny did not. Navalny, Navalny did not win. The best documentary. Oh, I was thought you were talking fi- about BAFTAs. No, I was talking about that the six of the 11 awards at the DGA went to women. So the DGA was criticized that the top nominees for feature were all men. Six of them, in fact, because the Daniels are two people. Uh, But most of the awards they handed out went to women. And they were not just minor awards. They're significant major awards like Best Documentary and Best First Time Breakthrough Director and Best Miniseries. So... Uh, that's good. And Charlotte Wells, like you, After Sun was one of my favorite films of the year. And it was a quiet, small little film. I saw another, uh, literally a quiet movie. It was called The Quiet Girl. It's up for Best International uh, Feature at right. the Oscars this I year. I haven't seen the that Irish yet. film. And it is one of those quietly devastating movies. It's like, you're like, what? What's going on? Why is this? Is this anything going to happen? It's like, and then in the end, you're just like, oh my God, that movie was amazing. Well, um, you know, the, uh, we, we, you mentioned the Baptists. We must move on to the Baptists. Big shocker at the Baptists. Oh, my God. Mixed signals from the DGA and the Baptists. What's going on? The Baptists, quite surprisingly, had a big winner, and it was not a British film. It was not a Hollywood film. It was a German film, All Quiet on the Western Front. It swept. It was nominated for, it didn't sweep, it didn't win every award, but it was nominated for 14 awards, and it won seven of them, including Best Picture Overall, Best International Film, I think they say Best Film, not in the English language, and Best Director. So that was a big win for All Quiet on the Western Front. The Best British Film was The Banshees of Inishirin, which won four awards, including Supporting Actor and Supporting Actress, both well-deserved. And as uh, Sperling said, the Best Documentary at the BAFTAs was Navalny, also on my best of the year list, and Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio won for Best Animated Film. In the acting, again, the Banshees triumphed in supporting roles. Austin Butler won playing Elvis, and Kate Blanchett won for Tar. What does this say about the Oscars, Sperling? Is it is it everything everywhere? Is it all quiet? Is that going to come up and win and be another foreign language film like Parasite? What does it mean? Well, okay, a couple things. Well, first off, let's face it. All Quiet on the Western Front doesn't have a shot because it's already won an Oscar for Best Picture <laughs> back in 1930. Uh, I'm, I'm kidding, of course. Uh, but uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think that it's anybody's game. I, I don't necessarily think that the BAFTAs uh, translate as well as everybody likes to think they do. Well, I asked the Academy, apparently you can't call them anymore, but you can send them an email for a reference question at the Academy Library. And I just filled out that form earlier before the show. We'll see if we get a response before the end. What is the overlap between Ampus and BAFTA? How many people who vote for the Oscars also vote for the BAFTAs? I could not find that info online, and maybe the Academy will be able to tell us that information. That'll be interesting. But basically, they're not mixed signals for the very simple fact that the Directors Guild of America could not award anything to the best director of All Quiet on the Western Front because he's not an American director. So they right. were not shunning him. They did not send a mixed signal. He well, wasn't eligible. Well, it's not eligible. about being an American director. Keep in mind, it's about being a member of the Directors Guild of America I beg, for uh, years. Apologies, you're quite right. It's, yeah. uh, uh, and uh, ooh, Well, I, I, I'm pretty sure he is not a, a member of the DGA. Um, yeah, why would he be? Well, there, as you point out, there are international directors who are members of the DGA, like Ang Lee, for example. Um, True. But, but he is not. He has not. This is a breakthrough. Maybe he'll become one soon. But they were not dissing him. He was, I believe, not eligible. A lot of times people are not members of the WGA. So 
if the WGA did not vote for all quiet, that doesn't mean, you know, so it, you have to be a member of that org for them to award you. And he was not, I believe. We'll check that up. But I'm pretty sure it's not a question of, you know, ignoring or mixed signals. They couldn't. And this is going to go on for the rest of the Guild Awards. SAG. Uh, I don't believe any of the actors in the movie are members of SAG or they're not eligible. They it didn't, you know, it's not up for SAG. It's not going to be up for WGA. You know, there's a lot of categories where this movie is not going to be a player. So we won't get a sense if All Quiet on the Western Front is building momentum. So come Oscar night, it may blow us away and we'll say, ah, oh, we should have paid more attention to the BAFTAs. Well, there's very few fig leaves to look at or very few tea leaves to look at. Fig leaves cover say, up things. Who are you offering tea fig leaves to? Reveal things. I always like to remove fig leaves and I like to look at tea leaves. So it's not a mixed hey, signal. a children's show. I mean, yeah. a family show. Calm <laughs> yeah. down. Is it a children's show? I feel like a child sometimes. But one thing is a luck. Kate Blanchett, best actress. Maybe you'll want Michelle Yao. Maybe you want somebody else. But it, it's one of those feeling inevitable type things. Yeah, it's also like the way to honor that particular film. It's like, okay, we're not going to give you a director. We're not going to give you liked, a best they picture. They liked it a lot, obviously. Yes, you're quite right. But here you go. Now, tar, we, we've checked off our tar box. There you go. Next. Well, and that's fair enough. I like it when you, when you share the love. And we should share the love, too. We don't give enough credit to Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. In our social justice section, we should point out that he's very good at getting headlines. Now He's very he, good at getting headlines, even when he's not a part of the headline. Like when Trump decides he's going to run for president again and he like mentions Ron DeSantis, that was the big news coming out of that, yep. out of that announcement. Right, and down in Florida, he took on Disney, of course, and got a lot of headlines. He's take on Disney, he's fighting Disney, he's winning the war against Disney, and they stripped Disney of all these special privileges that had a little fiefdom in the middle of Florida, this crazy arrangement that I don't even necessarily agree with, but that's been the case since it began, and since Walt built Disney World in the middle of Florida. They've had all these special tax abatements and status, and they can do whatever they want and build their own roads and bridges and infrastructure. Nobody can tell them anything different. That's been going on for a long time and when DeSantis decided he could make hay by attacking Disney he did it and ah he took them on and won everything as we predicted at the time it would end up being a bunch of nothing and that's exactly what it it was that's right that's what it is it would all come down to nothing and that's what's happening first it became clear if the move by DeSantis and the legislature stood suddenly Osceola and Orange counties two big counties in the middle of Florida where Disney is located would be on the hook for a mountain of debt a billion dollars in debt. I actually kind of thought maybe that's part of his plan because there's a lot of people of color in those two counties and I thought maybe he doesn't care. But no, the Florida legislature realized, uh uh-oh, Also, it created a lot of headaches when he tried to do what he did because it would mean the state would have to provide all sorts of infrastructure for Disney World, meaning a lot more debt, if it won one of the state's biggest job creators and tourist magnets to keep functioning properly. What to do? Well, cave. Disney, it turns out, will keep its tax benefits. It will keep its tax-exempt status. It will keep the ability to approve development plans without getting local regulators to sign off. It stays essentially the same with one small change. Uh, Governor DeSantis did get control of the board overseeing the tax district that Disney is in. That's it. Whether anything comes of that, who knows? But right now, basically, he got a whole bunch of nothing. And he doesn't care because he got the headlines he wants, and he can move on. 
Yeah, although I think he might care when it comes time for the presidential primaries, which he is said to be a part of, and somebody's able to say, yeah, you're so strong and powerful, except actually, you know, nothing ever happened. Like, somebody's going to bring that up. You know that. They will, but they won't be able to stick, and people are just glad he stuck it to woke Disney. What about woke Matilda? Maybe he should pick on her next. Yeah, especially since she's a kid and he's much bigger than her, so he could totally <laughs> win that fight, without a doubt. <laughs> although she can maybe dance around him a bit. Mm-hmm. So Yeah, you know, it was a good musical. She could be pretty wily. But, uh, you know, look, the latest editions of books by Roald Dahl, they have been tweaked by his estate so as not to offend, offend you know, you know, I guess fat people. Uh, remember, uh, you know, Netflix, by the way, they spent $700 million to acquire the rights to the Roald Dahl universe. I mean, uh, uh, what's the right word? Uh, oh, books. books. Yeah, this got, this <laughs> got an universe. extraordinary amount of press. People love the oh, Raw Dolls Woke. Oh, they're ruining everything. Uh, some of the changes. The word fat to describe people is gone from all the books, apparently. The word ugly to describe people is gone from all the books. In one section, female is replaced by woman. Uh, the Oompa Loompas are referred to as small people instead of men because there are female Oompa Loompas, as everybody knows. The cloud men in James and the Giant Peach are now called cloud people because there are female cloud people. Uh, Augustus Gloop in Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, instead of being enormously fat, is now just enormous. A woman in another book, instead of being ugly and beastly, is now just beastly. Weirdly, in Fantastic Mr. Fox, a delightful animated film, the three sons of Mr. Fox have been changed to three daughters. No particular reason, doesn't really change anything else, but that's what's going on here. Look, before anybody gets all upset, this is, and and believe me, they're upset. Prime Minister Rishi Sunak weighed in. He said, great work should be preserved and not airbrushed. I would just rather talk about anything than the economy and Brexit. (laughs) That's what the Prime Minister of the UK said. Salman Rushdie said, Roald Dahl was no angel, but this is absurd censorship. And it's not censorship because it's the own people who own the rights to it doing it. Philip Pullman, great author, said, let him go out of print. Kids should read better authors (laughs) and more current (laughs) authors. Philip Pullman knows how to stir stuff up. Uh, I'll just say a a few quick things. This happens all the time. Every five, 10 years, when they reissue Nancy Drew books and Hardy Boy books, they tweak them. They don't throw cell phones into Nancy Drew's hand, but they do tweak them to make sure the wording do and they, phrasing Do they is, take the word golly gee willikers out and then put it in? You know, sometimes, sometimes word. they do. If something sounds really hokey and corny, they will change that stuff. They want to they change them, it to OMG, WTF. Well, they have modern tales that they do in the Nancy Drew canon that are hip and modern. You know, so Nancy's modern and got cell phoning and texting and all that. But for the classic books, they do tweak the language all the time just to make sure there's nothing incredibly offensive or stupid because they want to make money. It's not about being woke. It's not about, you know, trying to appease people. It's they want these books to stay evergreens and keep read by kids. And I have kids go, what? Or, huh? Or like, wow, that's obnoxious, you know? So they're just trying to make money. And it's being done all the time. Uh, Nancy Boy, Hardly Drews, uh, Dr. Seuss people, of course, Dr. Doolittle, uh, also, you know, you, you got a book that has Dr. the N word. Kind of has, kind of has some some stuff worked in there where you can't really rewrite him because he's like, yeah, find another word that rhymes with you know whatever. Well, it was you mostly know. imagery in Dr. Seuss in the children's books. They pu- pulled a few very low selling books. We're not talking Cat in the Hat here. These are books that weren't big sellers, and they had some really ugly racist imagery, caricatures of black people and Asian people, and they said, eh, it's not worth. You know, we don't want to sell them anymore. That's all. That's it. I say it's time to go after Curious George. Well, that guy, he's always monkeying around, that guy. There you go. So uh, the family said, oh, come on. 
Uh, it's common in publishing to look at every detail, like cover and layout and language. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, it's true. Uh, and in fact, but uh, the other point of this is that, <laughs> you know, Roald Dahl's pretty bad. <laughs> you know, extremely anti-Semitic, pretty misogynistic, pretty racist. His family even publicly apologized in 2020 for his lifetime of anti-Semitic statements and writings, uh, not always reflected in the children's books, but in other books. When you look at his kids' books, villains, the vast majority of them are fat, ugly women. You're like, wow, really? Again? Again? You know, if you read, if you read four or five books, you're like, wow, you know, are there no fat, ugly men in this world? You know, it's always only fat, the one ugly women. Augustus Gloop. And it really, That's the only one. but he's not a villain. He's a no, little greedy, true. but he's not a villain. He's just, you know, prey to his own thing. So there's a lot to apologize for Roald Dahl. There's a lot of things to change. And in fact, Roald Dahl changed stuff himself. The Oompa Loompas were originally black African pygmies. And the NAACP at the time was like, wow. So he shipped in these black Africans to work in his factory. <laughs> it sounds a lot like slavery. And he was like, how dare you? I'm not ready. And then, well, they have a point. And he actually rewrote the passage so that they were described as white-skinned. Now, that doesn't mean if he changed it, anybody else can change it, but it is his estate and his family doing it. They're pretty modest tweaks, and it's all to make money. If you want to read the original versions, they're still in the library. I would argue that the estate should make them available as well especially in Kindle. Why not? You want to read the original versions? You should be able to. One more thing that they can sell. Uh, but don't I, think this I, I is all I don't read anything that I, that, I, that, that I can't get out of my subscriptions. Yeah, I, yeah. I don't, get it this ain't about woke. This is just about, you know, making money. And you know who's making money? Paramount Plus. Well, in the right. streaming that's, world. That's, that's the subscriptions I was, I was telling that's you That's right. About. They added 10 million subscribers. They hit 77 million overall, including bundles. But virtually all the growth came from Paramount Plus and that platform alone. What did they add in the last quarter that helped them? Taylor Sheridan's 1923, Taylor Sheridan's Tulsa King with Sylvester Stallone, a Criminal Minds reboot called Criminal Minds Evolution, and the streaming debut of Top Gun Maverick. And boy, do they wish they had the exclusive rights to Yellowstone. <laughs> They're like, damn it, we should not have made that deal. But uh, yeah, so Paramount's on fire. HBO Max is on fire with The Last of Us that we haven't heard the new numbers for that post-Super Bowl show, whether it continued to grow. But there's a lot of stuff happening in streaming. Paramount also owns Pluto. Pluto hits 79 million active monthly users. That's an ad-supported video-on-demand platform, which I guess is a little different from fast channels, all these... All these, you know, alphabet soup stuff gets a little confusing. So Paramount's doing great, except, of course, uh, their losses are growing as well. They hit $575 million in losses for the quarter, higher than one year ago. TV ad sales declined. Uh, you know, it ain't pretty. Subscriptions in North America, they've just raised them. They've gone from $10 to $12 a month for Paramount Plus with Showtime and no ads. Now... If you already bundled it with Showtime, like I did, my bill went down from $15 to $12, but there aren't many of us. So, you know, and their merger, they're getting to write down up to $1.5 billion. So we'll talk more about all of that in Inside Baseball. But yeah, it's a big amount of money. It's a big deal. Uh, every time there's a merger, people can save money, and that's why they wipe their library sometimes. 
Right. And uh, you mentioned uh, the Yellowstone issue, which uh, I don't know if if, uh, this particular listener, Richard is his name. He wants us to say his last name, but I will tell you that uh, he wrote into us at dirt at showbizsandbox.com. And he says, hello, one big deal or big whoop. You missed part of the Yellowstone angle. Uh Uh-oh. Michael mentioned putting a new star in. Matthew McConaughey, we talked about it last week, and they're going to continue the show. There well, it might be a act- spinoff. It might be a spinoff. Uh, if, if, if I said it wrong, I apologize. But I, it was maybe a spinoff, or maybe they just keep the name and just put him in there. So it was, it was, you know, that was the idea. It was unclear what they were going to do. Well, he says he writes. Uh, Richard writes. There may actually be an advantage to starting a new show, even if it is with most of the old cast. It would break the deal with Peacock. The new series, ah. like the Yellowstone spinoffs, would be on Paramount's own streaming service. <laughs> that's true. Um, <laughs> that's a good point. Excellent point. The, uh, they were there. Thank ah. you, Richard. Yeah, thank you very much. And, must, and, but, and if Richard's weighing in on Big Deal or Big Whoops, it must be time for Big Deal or Big Whoop, our weekly segment where we discuss the top headlines in entertainment and tell you whether they're really important or just overhyped nonsense. Sperling, what's our first story? Well, normally we don't like predictions about where a market is going. <laughs> predictions like music streaming may hit 1 billion subscriptions by 2025. Whatever. Or HBO Max predicted to double subscribers in five years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That sort of stuff, it, you know, it's, let's face it, it's pie in the sky. Give us the real numbers right now, and then we will make some fanciful predictions of our own. Thank you very much. Exactly. But a yeah, I mean, we could do that. Uh, a new prediction we read is actually very telling. A company called Digital Research TV says the continent of Africa has 6 million subscribers to streaming video on demand, SVOD. Uh, and those are services like Netflix. And six million. They also, six million. Six, six millions. But here's the thing. Good news. Good news. They say the market should grow to more than 15 million subscribers by 2028. Here's the rub. Africa is a continent. And by the way, it is home to 1.3 billion people. So I think you're missing like a large majority of them. <laughs> big deal or big whoop? Uh, it's a big deal. It shows how much room for growth there is in Africa and India in a way. India, is, of course, is much more uh, settled there, but there's still a lot of room for growth there. Disney Plus and Amazon Prime, for example, are just rolling out their services in Nigeria and South Africa. Paramount Plus is only entering South Africa in this this year, I think 2023 or maybe 2024. Uh, so, you know, there's a lot of room for growth. But, you know, there are issues in Africa. I was just in South Africa. There were daily planned power outages of two and a half hours a day, different times of the day for every region. It's like, okay. Now there was a new story. They're now facing 10 hours a day, 10 hours a day of power outages. That's not good. That's a, an electrical grid. Well, that's not grid. good for groceries. Think no, no, no. It's, no, yeah, they had stories about grocery stores having to sell meat when the power would go out and desperately cooking up the meat so they could sell it cooked or selling yeah. it at a discount. Um, but this electric grid is beset by a century of abuse and neglect. So it's going to be a hard, hard fix. And But there's other countries like Nigeria, which are on fire, but electrification... People having, you know, phones and homes that they can watch and look at this stuff. So uh, there's a lot of infrastructure that needs to be put in place before you can really, you know, drive up the numbers for like people like Netflix. Well, the BBC is not having a good day. On the one hand, the company is fighting off right wing attempts to cut funding for the venerable institution. On the other, it must defend the not so venerable practice of creating propaganda for the Chinese government and labeling it as vital to its 
funding of journalism. They need money. They need the money. (laughs) Yeah. So, of course, we'll do it. Uh, Finally, in India, a documentary that delves into the troubled history of that country's ruler, Narendra Modi, has the government in a fury. It denounced the documentary, which details Modi's involvement in anti-Muslim riots that led to more than 1,000 people dying. Uh, And that's just the least of, uh, that's, yeah, there's a lot going on in India. Google it. Well, this was decades. Uh, This was a long time ago, this incident. Yeah. uh, And that it's only gotten worse since then. Uh, now, BBC did everything it no, could India, to block... No, India, India, India. Oh, India did everything they could to block the film from being seen in any way possible. And now, coincidentally, government officials from its tax office have stormed the BBC headquarters in New Delhi in an, an entirely unrelated incident. Pay no attention to that man behind the curtain. So is this a big deal or a big whoop? Well, it's always easy to criticize, and we love doing it, because that's our job. But uh, it ain't easy being the BBC sometimes. You know, they're cutting your funding, and they're like, well, we can make some money by making a deal with the devil and making ads for China. And they're like, how dare you make ads for China? I'm like, well, they shouldn't, but you should also fund them properly, so they don't have to. And in India, uh, the Modi government is very dangerous and bad. It's uh, not a good government. I don't like them. Not a fan at all. And uh, there's other stuff roiling the uh, UK film and TV industry. The government in the UK is looking to change change its valuation of studio spaces so that UK studios may face a massive rise in property taxes that could strangle the country's growth, or so they say, as a center for film and TV production. Everybody knows London, the UK, Elstree Studios, Ealing, there's a lot of big- Pinewood? Pinewood, Shepherd. I mean, there's a lot of studio space in England that gets used all the time, and they're saying this could really, really harm one of our big industries. So that's a big problem as well. Now, you're going to have to, uh, this is finally going to come out, okay? This is this, is, this next story. I, it's finally going to be really revealed that I don't necessarily know how to properly pronounce. I think it's Jude Jameson. Jude Jameson is how I would say it. Because uh, I always call it Jude Mison. Oh, maybe you're right. You might be right. Jude Mison. Yeah. Oh, actually, Jude Jameson. Yeah. Uh, uh, it's, well, no, no, no. It's, it's, it, uh, it's, uh, the headline has it mispronounced, misspelled. Well, well, maybe it is. J- maybe it is Ju Jameson. I always heard it was Ju Jameson, but I don't know why. It's a theater company in in, you know in New York we'll City. Go with yours. Yeah. Here, here's the thing: two major owners of theaters on Broadway and in the West End, they are merging. The U.S. company, Ju Jameson, as we now know how to pronounce it, well, and the hope. United Kingdom owners of the Ambassador Group are combining forces. In New York City, Ju Jameson will own. Well, they already own five Broadway houses. Ambassador owns ten houses. In the West End. And actually, Ambassador already owns two Broadway houses. One is the home of the Harry Potter play. Ambassador also owns a string of houses across the United States and the world. Combined, Drew Jameson and Ambassador will control 63 live performance venues circling the globe. Drew Jameson's Jordan Roth will sit on the board of the company and be the largest single shareholder, as well as the creative director. On Broadway, the combined behemoth will rank number three with seven houses behind the Nederlanders with nine. And get this, the Schuberts, they have 17. Big deal or big whoop? 
Uh, it's a big deal. It's never good when we lose a buyer. So it's one less buyer. But uh, the ambassadors really did not have a big presence in New York, just two houses. So this is just making this third player come sort of closer to the Niederlanders and the Schuberts. So maybe it's not so bad. And Jordan Roth is a really good producer. He's known for favoring U.S. shows in his houses rather than British imports. And when you look at the shows he's backed over the years, uh, got really, really good taste. And the ambassador's theatrical arm in the U.K., uh, they generate new shows, but they have a, a far more mixed record. Some hits, of course, everybody does, but by and large, not the best stuff. So Jordan Roth will be very, very welcome in that world. And, you know, with 63 venues around the world, you got a lot of room to power stuff up and make it happen. Right now, looking at the J- Jameson Theaters, they've got the Book of Mormon. Hades Town and Moulin Rouge, all long runners and all winners of Best Musical. They've got Leah Michelle in Funny Girl, which can run as long as she wants to stay in it, and the upcoming musical New York, New York. You know the De Niro, Eliza Minnelli movies. So four of their five houses are booked for a while, and three of them for you know the foreseeable future. So they've been in really good shape. So goodbye by the Ambassador Group. But eh, always sorry to see people merge and get bigger and bigger and bigger. But that's the name of the game these days. Well, you know, I hear uh, about one theater that's uh, opening up soon, the Majestic. You can uh, head on. Hey, that's right. I, I hear it's haunted, though, just FYI. <laughs> See, because of the Phantom Got of the it. Opera. Got See, it, got it. Got okay. It. Just, just. Well, Michael, good news. The strike is over. Woohoo! Workers at HarperCollins were on strike for months, and finally it's over, and they've won some important concessions. Minimum salaries go up yearly until they hit $50,000 in 2025. The bad news is they're probably starting from $25,000, which is where they were in 1990. So that should tell you just how poor. Well, anyway, uh, they, uh, the, the workers get better benefits, better time off, more power for the unions and other details we haven't necessarily learned about yet. The publishing industry is overwhelmingly white and wealthy. And one obvious reason is, as I just mentioned, most simply can't afford to take an entry-level job in Manhattan without a trust fund or wealthy parents to support them. That's slowly changing in the contract this new contract with HarperCollins, it also addresses diversity challenges. Is this a big deal or a big whoop? Well, it's a big deal. They struck and they won, and I think their demands were fair and reasonable, and I'm glad they got it. Uh, You know, it's a... Change is happening. It's going to keep coming to the other publishing houses as well. By the way, The Majestic, always a good safe bet to guess it's owned by the Schuberts because they own 17 Broadway houses, and indeed, that's right. (laughs) Yeah. Music producer and DJ David Gaida is one of the biggest acts in the world. He's been named the number one DJ in the world several times by DJ Magazine and Billboard. Named his hit, When Love Takes Over, with singer Kelly Rowland as the greatest dance pop collaboration of all time. That's a lot of qualifiers. (laughs) Dance pop collaboration. In any case, uh, those are just two of... David Guida's many achievements, along with selling tens of millions of albums and singles. Now Guida is making news with his latest collaborator. Get this. It's someone named Artificial Intelligence. Brand new artist on the scene. (laughs) Uh, he, He played a new song while DJing that features rapper Eminem saying, this is the future of rave sound. I'm getting awesome and underground. That those were the lyrics. You might say, yeah, so what? Well, actually, It's not Eminem or even an Eminem imitator. It's a deep fake audio of Eminem's voice created with AI. Gaida insists it's the future of music or at least a new genre of music because every new innovation comes on the heels of new technology. I say it wasn't David Gaida telling us that. It was somebody 
pretending to be David Guetta, and it wasn't a somebody. It was ChatGBT or whatever it's called. <laughs> big deal or big whoop? Uh, it's a big whoop until it becomes a big deal. I'm not sure faking the names of celebrities will become a massively important uh, thing in, in music. Maybe he means just you know made-up voices, even if they're not famous people. But yes, new tools all can lead to new genres or new styles or new innovations. As long as it's a useful tool, as long as it proves, pr- proves creatively interesting, I'm not sure this is the case with that. You can make up fake voices. Okay. There's a lot of music being created by, by algorithms and with fake voices and, and you know artificial intelligence personalities. So it's already happening in Japan. There are some avatars that are quite popular. So yeah, but mm, I, I don't know. As a particular tool, it doesn't really, you know, for, certainly as a tool to imitate famous people, that seems pointless because you can't use it. <laughs> you know, the Eminem will say, no, you can't release that. So I don't get the point, but uh, who knows? Well, and, and look, I'm, I'm told I'm artificially intelligent all the time. So. <laughs> and by the way, music, you know, I, I love music. I have Amazon Music. I've had Spotify. I follow many artists. And you would think, you know, they're trying to get their act together. You would think if I follow an artist like Ron Sexsmith, terrific artist, when they release a new album or single, you would think when I went onto my app and looked at, you know, my main homepage, that there'd be a thing saying, that, by the way, there's a new album by Ron Sexsmith. You follow him. They don't do that. Figure that out. I mean, how does that make any sense? Well, I, I, I logged on to Spotify on Friday and they were like, oh, so-and-so's got a new album out. And I, I was like, I don't think I've ever heard of this person, but thanks, I guess. <laughs> right, I right. Know. Yeah, they, yeah. basically, if I listen to, say, um, Katie Lang, then they say, you might also like four other albums by Katie Lang. I'm like, oh, wow, thanks. I never would have known. You know, <laughs> like, that's really helpful. <laughs> Well, ever since CNN fired Chris Cuomo, it's been trying to figure out what to do with the prime real estate of 9 p.m. They turned down my offer with Michael to host the hour, but, uh, you know, should have taken us up. Yep, should have. Jake Tapper was a thought, but he prefers to stay in daytime. Don Lemon has shifted to the mornings, uh, although not without difficulties. Oof. See last week. Uh, so now they've landed on, uh, you know, let's see. Nobody, actually. Uh, CNN is launching CNN Primetime, a branded collection of like stuff, I guess, major interviews, quote unquote surprises and other things featuring a tossed together group of stories from across the entire CNN family. Uh, what? Huh? Uh, on the other hand, maybe 9 p.m. isn't so important anymore. At Fox, the highest rated hour of the day is at 5 p.m. When that network airs, The Five. Yeah, bigger than Tucker. Big, bigger than Tucker. Bigger than Sean Hannity. I know. Yeah. Go figure. Uh, at MSNBC, the highest rated hour is at 6 p.m. with Ari Melber. At CNN, the highest rated hour is Aaron Burnett at 7 p.m., although that's kind of a fictitious, you know, uh, not what? fictitious, but uh, what? it's one of those statistics that kind are you, of... You can, are you trying to be like uh, Don Lemon? <laughs> no, no, Don't. I'm just saying that, look, you fired everybody from 8 to 11, so now, of course, 7 o'clock is, it's like... <laughs> There's not a single, none of the three 24-hour news channels have a primetime show that's their top show. That's oh, pretty right. unusual. And I doubt there's anybody going from Fox at 5 p.m. to MSNBC at 6 to CNN at 7. Maybe the latter two, but that's very notable. That's not fictitious. They have a primetime lineup, and none of them are higher rated than the 7 p.m. hour. So that's, I think it's a big deal. Uh, maybe there is a sea change. Tucker and, and Sean Hannity are supposed to be bringing in the eyeballs. There are people at MSNBC. Of course, they lost Rachel Maddow. Uh, but there are other people. They're supposed to have a primetime that's robust and strong. Uh, and that's not happening right now. Is it about primetime getting weaker? Or is it about other day parts mattering more? 
Hmm. I think it's also about, you know, you're losing talent. You know, you, yeah. you lost, you make a good point. You lost some talent and now things are reshuffling. That's kind of what happens. Right. You may it happens you have a to point. sports teams too. You know, you lose the quarterback. Yeah. You have an off year or two until you find yeah. another one like us, uh, but that's like, yeah. Um, we are having an off, you know, like, no, no, like us that we were the new talent they should take. <laughs> oh, oh yeah. You see here, I'm making self-deprecating jokes when I should be saying hire us CNN. Yeah. Come on, That's Chris right. Licht. Here's my number. Uh, but you know what? This is all very, t- it's all about television and it's all very inside baseball, which means it's time for inside baseball. Our weekly segment where we analyze some of the headlines that have the entertainment industry buzzing. We'll explain what they mean for the bu- business and more importantly, how they affect you. And here's how this will affect you. The TV you watch today is not the TV you watched last year, okay? And it's not going to be the TV you watch next year. And everything is going to change. And linear will go up and it will go down. But it will be there and it won't be there. And up is down, north is south. What's happening? What's happening? What's happening? Well, the TV industry, the major networks, cable channels, and streamers, they're all reeling from so many changes. Down. Oh, (laughs) down is up. (laughs) I should read read this, everyone. (laughs) Down is up. Hey, that's pretty good, Michael. You should come up with more of those. Like It was in the intro. It was in the intro. That's why you said it again. I read it three hours ago. You would have thought I'd remember. It's, it's at the top of the show too. Oh, oh yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah I can't read. Keep going. I, 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 have I told you about my condition? Where I don't remember <laughs> things. Uh, well, listen, shows are being canceled before they air. Others are disappearing after a season. And, and you know, the problem with that is all their episodes are being yanked from streaming libraries. Still others are the most expensive, most prestigious shows imaginable for years and then they disappear into the witness protection program. I don't know where they go. What the hell is going on? I can tell you what's going on. There's too many shows. So cue up these segments. Okay, well, okay, here, here's what we got. We got every segment of TV is in trouble. That's this segment. That's right. Primetime numbers are way down. That means viewership. Cable numbers are down. There's less money from advertising, less money from carriage fees for those cable channels, and streamers, the future, are spending a ton of money and mostly losing money. <laughs> so, and you know what? Even Spotify still isn't profitable. So if you know the video streamers are waiting to make money, even Spotify doesn't do it, and they don't even have to create the content. I mean, they buy podcasts and waste a lot of money there, but the albums, the music, they don't create that stuff. It's handed to them. So here's a look at some of the, you know, it's, it's a mess. It's a mess. Well, okay. Here's one trend that I do not like. In fact, if it wasn't for the fact that the Los Angeles Dodgers play on mm-hmm. Spectrum, I would cancel my cable. Cable channels cannot raise carriage fees forever, and they have been, and it's getting out of control. I mean, even sports channels aren't commanding the same price anymore that they used to. Yeah, I mean, a lot of people are switching to slim down TV providers like YouTube TV, like I do, and eyeballs are disappearing. And people always complain about ESPN. It's a hugely popular channel, but people who don't care about sports like, why am I paying $6 a month just for ESPN? I hate these carriage fees. Well, guess what? Things are changing. Fox reported this just now. Carriage fees and ad growth were not enough. It reported that affiliate revenue declined on a yearly basis for the first time ever. That's, that's a big wake-up call. Disney's cable revenue also declined. NBC Universal said their revenue would have been down by 2% if it wasn't for the World Cup. And the, 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 the silver lining is a Moody's analyst says, yeah, yeah, linear TV is falling apart, but it's going to take years. 
<laughs> oh yeah, no, you know, that, that's you're absolutely right. When I went to the super my the Super Bowl party, I almost said the Super Bowl. I did not go to the Super Bowl, but when I went to the party uh, that uh, na- some neighbors threw, there were lots of television producers and executives there, and they said, "Look, we all know linear is is kind of on a on a slow decline, which is why you know everybody is suggesting, hey, uh, Bob Iger, maybe get rid of ESPN since the cost is going to go up and the ratings are going to go down." But the reality is, advertisers aren't going to give up on it because it's the only place where it can currently be measured properly. Mm -hmm. So it's one of those things. You're absolutely right. Moody is saying it. The people who work in the field are saying it. So it's pretty much going to happen slowly. Uh, Saying it's taking years to melt is another way of saying it's not going away anytime soon. A lot of people still watch cable TV. You know what? It's still really hard to watch streaming television when I've got YouTube TV for my mom, who admittedly is 94, but for my brother, who's in his 60s. He hates that he cannot just change channels. You know, he can call up a grid and, you know, but he can't, it's just a pain in the neck. He can't just click the channel and change the button. He also, if he wants to watch ESPN Plus, he has to close one app and open another. It's a huge pain in the neck. Whereas with cable, you just go like this or you go 87. You know, you can't just jump to a channel, even if you have the grid up on on most of these streaming TV uh, uh, bundlers. So it's just not as user-friendly as, and don't tell me you can just tell the TV what you want it to do. It's like, not when you're old. <laughs> it doesn't work well. So for well, older people, like all things, they like that comfort. Yeah. Like, like all things, we talk about analog dollars into digital dimes. Mm-hmm. Well, everybody was racing to get to streaming. Well, congratulations. You destroyed your windows and once one profitable distribution channel so you could own the distribution channel all yourselves. Congratulations. You went from hundreds of million dollars to tens of millions of dollars. Streaming is very expensive and very unprofitable and definitely the future. That's right. And I'm very annoyed when I go to Paramount Plus and I want to see something. I'm like, where is Police Squad? It's never been on there. The classic like eight episode TV series or six episodes or whatever it is. Very few episodes that spawned two movies and a new reboot starring Liam Neeson. That's in the works. And I think, well, that's going to be on Paramount Plus. Surely. No, it isn't. They're just getting rid of stuff left and right because it doesn't generate enough eyeballs. So it's really expensive, but maybe it shouldn't be that expensive. When TV critics have to apologize for not being able to watch all the really good TV shows, mind you, not all the TV shows. They just can't even watch the really good stuff. They don't have enough room for it. They I gave up trying up. years ago. Like people oh. are asking me, are you watching The Last of Us? I'm like, I haven't finished Lost, okay? (laughs) Well, yeah, that's on you. That is on you. That's been years. But clearly, you know we've reached peak TV when even critics can't keep up. So yeah, maybe streamers don't need a gazillion new shows every week. And that is changing. Seriously. Disney Plus and Disney, they are dramatically slowing down on the pace of new movie and TV shows and not just from Star Wars and Marvel. They're still going to have a ton of shows, maybe just not that many. Paramount Plus, they insist... 2023 is the year they will, that's the most that we're going to spend on content. It will go down after that. Same story at Warner Brothers, HBO Max Discovery or whatever the hell it's called. And everyone says they're not going to spend so much money on sports rights. We'll believe them as soon as they stop paying so much for sports rights. It hasn't happened yet. Well, that's one of the reasons, again, you know, along with linear declining, they're like, hey, 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 Bob, listen, this is, you've got a very hungry dragon called ESPN and it's only getting more expensive to feed that dragon. They don't lose so money on ESPN. Maybe, they do not lose money. Spinning it off would be stupid. 
Um, and there, it is not a money loss. It's not a money loss for them the way you know Disney Plus is losing money or Paramount Plus is losing money. No, ESPN no, no, no. and ESPN no. Plus are not losing money. So let's not kid ourselves and think this is some loss leader here. This is making money. So anybody saying, "Well, you should dump it," well, no. Like, but I mean, think about no. it. If, if you're if you're a uh, if if you're the CEO of that company and you're like, okay, well, it's not losing money, but last year we made a billion dollars and this year we're going to make $950 million. Like, how am I going to explain that to shareholders? Well, in, tw- in 20 years, you'll say people are migrating to ESPN plus, which is doing well. And then 20 years, if we start to lose money, we'll reevaluate. But while we're making money on it, we're pretty happy with it. <laughs> well, and what you should be doing is exactly what you say, Michael, control your costs, i.e. don't spend $10 trillion for the rights to one game of, of what nobody tunes into ESPN to watch them talk about, you know, it used to be the only place to talk about sports and that used to be a thing. I don't think they have that same pull anymore. There's too many fish in the sea. So my brother listens to a podcast about Florida State. He's a Florida State fan. They just talk Florida State all day, every day. It's endless. It drives me nuts. But there it is. Hey, there's a TV, there's a brother- cable channel. There's a cable channel where they talk about like the SEC for 20 hours a day or another one for the ACC. So they've got those specialized things. So ESPN is not the home of chatting about sports anymore. It's where you go to watch certain sports. So if they don't have the rights, they don't have anything. Um, does your brother listen to podcasts about entertainment? Nope. Because, oh. Okay, never mind. Nobody well, in my family does. <laughs> okay. <laughs> hey, I know that feeling. Uh, look, we've talked about the libraries being expensive, but the reality is at some point there will be advertising on all of these streamers, whether it's, well, Netflix is already, well, already well, yeah, announced. But you, you have the ability to not have ads. True. They're not all becoming yes. cable channels. You can pay extra and, or pay premium, right? But they've all been merging and they all have a chance when they merge or do any big change, they have a chance legally for tax write-offs. So when they're dumping libraries and stuff or shedding this or that, it's because they have the opportunity to write off a bunch of money on their taxes. And it might be, it might be, you know, penny wise and pound foolish. I have still, we don't have good numbers on exactly how much they're paying for like to have a library, a show sitting on the shelf. Westworld, like every year, apparently be new copyright, new royalties, new payments going out. Surely you can renegotiate eventually and say like, all right, you know, it's getting this many numbers of viewing. Do you want us to get rid of it? Or would you like us to keep doing it and renegotiate new royalties so they're more reasonable based on the eyeballs you're drawing? Okay, so as an example, and, uh, you know, I know we have to move on, so I'll just use this as a very quick example Mm -hmm. as how complicated this can be. Westworld would often have westernized versions, like, you know, as if it was a, you uh, you know, played on the piano, like a player piano of, say, a Radiohead song. Mm hmm and part of the problem with that is every so often you have to go back and renegotiate those rights. Right. And, and, so. and, and, but, and, but the rights holders are stupid when they hold up shows like the Carol Burnett show wasn't shown in syndication for decades for at for least a lot reason. of it because they didn't want they couldn't afford the rights for like the full orchestra that played this and that little tidbit. And it's yeah. like, well, now you're not helping. You're not getting any royalties. So you're right. They're yanking these shows from their thing library. So now you're getting zero royalties. We'll get to contracts in a minute, but like these are going to be renegotiated. If they're smart, they will adapt. 
But for example, fast, everybody loves fast. It's the new syndication. It used to be you had a show and you wanted it to last for 100 episodes. You could strip it Monday through Friday and make a lot of money in syndication. Now everyone is super excited by free ad-supported TV. Warner Brothers HBO Max Discoverer is yanking stuff off HBO because they're going to make a fast no, discoverer. Cha- yeah, they're going to make a fast <laughs> channel for Westworld so people can go watch Westworld on demand and watch some ads while they're at it. Kind of sucks if you're already subscribed to HBO and assumed you'd be able to watch it, you know, without ads, but that's like what me. they're doing. Right, exactly. So, you know, it's annoying, but you know, there they are. But you know what? People are also like, oh, these small shows, they canceled after two years, or I just want to watch it. They yanked the Gordita Chronicles off of, uh, um, I think it was HBO as well. And like, well, maybe it'll get rescued by this. It's like, no, uh, fast channels are not for shows that last 10 episodes or even two seasons. You know, there's not enough demand for those shows fast to build Fast channels a channel. are the new TV land. Well, they can be, but that again, TV Land was dominated by shows that ran and had a hundred episodes or more. There weren't a lot of; they didn't show shows that lasted for seven episodes. I'd love to see Best of the West, this old sitcom that I wonder how it holds up. It ran like eight episodes. Some shows work, like Faulty Towers, The Prisoner, My So-Called Life, Freaks and Geeks. These are shows with a very limited run that did get played in cable and elsewhere a little bit and build a fan base. But it ain't easy. It's a very rare show that doesn't run for like at least three or four or five seasons that can actually build an audience. But you know what? Basic Cable needs product and they've got all that content. So in what they're calling an experiment, HBO Warner Max Discovery Brothers is airing episodes of sitcoms like Silicon Valley on TBS and the drama True Blood on TNT. They're edited versions, obviously, but like, why are they calling this an experiment? They tried it with The Sopranos. They tried it with Sex in the City. They're going to try it with this stuff. Maybe they'll be a better fit. But basically, when they're designed for cable and uncensored cable, they're not always going to be a good fit when you shove them into a half hour or one hour slot with ads and cutting out all the juicy bits. My mom watched the movie My Cousin Vinny. She thought it was funny. She doesn't like cursing, but she you thought it was the, funny. Wait, is... And is then that, is and that then, the movie with the two Utes? Yes, and then my mom <laughs> saw cousin my cousin Vinny on basic cable and started to watch the movie and to her shock and surprise realized it wasn't as funny without the curse words. She didn't enjoy yeah, it. Go figure. Well, no, that was kind of a revelation to her. And The Sopranos did not work in Basic Cable. Sex in the City didn't work. Maybe Silicon Valley or True Blood will, but uh, when it's baked in their DNA, not always. But sure, you got the content. You might as well repurpose it. Deadline says maybe Netflix will start to do this as well. Okay, but this isn't going to rescue small shows like, uh, uh, what was that animated show about Toucans? <laughs> Forget what, Tuca and Birdie. Tuca, Tuca and Birdie. That ain't going to get any love because there aren't enough episodes. And now you're but, just now you're just making shows a Tuca and Birdie. That's one, a very acclaimed show, a very acclaimed show that went to do different networks. And I think it got two seasons, maybe three out of it, but like 18 episodes or something. But a very acclaimed show. I wish, uh, I, I wish people would watch it. But uh, Netflix, we said before, why aren't you ever thinking about syndication? We said this years ago. You've got... Uh, one day at a time, the Latin reboot. You know what? You've had it for four seasons. Why not do another season or two? And then you can sell it for syndication to like Nick at Night. 
That's still a thing. Or a fast channel. Fast channels work better if you've got 80 episodes, not when you got 20. So Netflix might say, you know what? If we want this show and we think it could be a fast channel, maybe we'll run it another year or two. It'll be worth it because then we can repurpose it rather than have it sit in our library and not get seen as much. And we can generate money with the ads. Well, one of the reasons, I mean, we've talked about this in the past, is that they have these three-year deals. And if you notice, all of the shows get canceled, at, at, you know, if they're successful on that third year, because except if they're for Stranger Things. Not, not if they're really successful, then they go on. They have many shows that have gone more than three years. But if it's on the bubble, they say, well, the contracts are going to fly up. They're going to be a lot more expensive after yes. year three. Right. But that's also a part of saying, look, everybody has to share in the risk and the reward, which the streamers aren't doing right now. Uh, but the contracts need to change. Uh, As a matter of fact, they will change. That's, that's one of our points. Yeah, it is. Because obviously now if you make a show and you're going to have in your contract, you actually have to air the show. <laughs> People are making a show, doing 10 episodes, and it gets yanked before it airs and no one ever sees it. And it disappears. I'm like, no, that's not happening. So there will be contract points about that. But there's other things that they could do. How about royalties changing? Maybe it's worth it to keep the show in your library if you know, the royalties are lower because it's not generating enough eyeballs. And people say, well, okay, I'd rather it be available than just disappear. And we'll take a reduced royalty, or maybe if it hits enough eyeballs in two years, we'll get that full royalty payment and then go back to zero and do it again. Maybe it'll take three years the next time, or maybe a show will become more and more popular over time, like Freaks and Geeks and, and stuff like that. And it will start to become more and more valuable for everybody. But there's a lot of work that has to be done. Music rights holders need to be a little more flexible because it doesn't help anyone to have your show disappear. Then nobody makes anything. Well, the reality is... Linear TV, though declining, it ain't dead yet. Absolutely not. Oh my God, somebody just died. <laughs> Sperling's going to kill Right me. now. Yes. On, our, on, on air. That's right. Who, who? Bar Barbara Bossom, uh, who people of fans of Hill Street Blues will know her. She played the wife, the ex-wife of Captain Frank Farillo, a terrific actress. She was actually the real-life wife of creator Stephen Boschko and appeared in like all of his, many of his shows as a recurring character. Uh, she was a very good actor, Emmy-nominated, um, but she just appeared in a lot of his shows as well, maybe even after they divorced in 97, but she has just died. But a great uh, a great show, Hill Street Blues, one of the great shows of all time, and so I'll always remember Barbara Boston. Uh, I found her annoying at first. And I thought just the actor was annoying. I was like, no, no, it was the character. But she became a little more bearable. But she'd just come in and annoy Frank all the time. And it was, it was like, oh, well, it's just believable. But she was great. She played a lot of different characters in a lot of different shows and a fine actor. But a lot of people have died this week. Raquel Welch died at 82. She really dragged me through my puberty. I don't know about you, Sperling. Yeah, right? Am I right? Well, yeah, I, no, I always no. said her life is, is definitely, she, she's, her life is a fantastic voyage. <laughs> that's right. Well, that's her breakthrough. Her best film is The Three Musketeers. Fun fact, she played a Pakuni Blackfoot Indian in a TV movie she made happen called The Legend of Walks Far Woman. This would not get made today, but it was a passion project, and it was filled almost entirely, other than Raquel, with Native American and Latin actors. So it was a good move at the time. Don't always retroactively say, oh, that's terrible. No, it was good. Tom Luddy, the co-founder of Telluride, he is dead at 79. That means with his death, only Stella Pence is the sole remaining founder of the fest who's still alive. There were four of them, and now there is one. So that's very sad. Goodbye to him. He also helped but now restore- you know, you know, You've met Tom Luddy many times. Have I? Yeah, in Cannes. He was always... He, oh, he, would, uh, he, he would be in the uh, press line with us, mm -hmm. and uh, it was... 
you know, he wasn't a member of the press, but he got a press credential every year. And it like, it definitely. Well, the, the, the head of Telluride absolutely deserves a press credential so they can see the movies or whatever. A festival well, he deserves credential. an industry credential, which is the same, oh. just as good, oh. if not better. Oh, but he got a press one? Oh, okay. That's funny. Yeah. Oh, well, I'm sure he was a nice man. He also helped uh, restore Abel Gantz's Napoleon a classic silent film that you need like three screens to see in a full orchestra. And I remember when it was restored and shown and Siskel never reviewed it. And I said, Oh my God, I want to see that movie. Oh, and I've still not seen it. It was going to be done again. And then COVID struck. And I was like, son, I knew people who were working on it. And I hope to God that baby gets, comes back again. Cause I'd like to see Napoleon on the big screens before I die. Actor Stella Stevens died at 84, uh, somewhat akin to Raquel Welch, a very attractive woman who was also very talented, but didn't get the full credit she deserved because she was so attractive. You can sum up her career in three roles. She was starred opposite Jerry Lewis in The Nutty Professor. She starred opposite opposite Ernest Borgnine, he should be so lucky, in The Poseidon Adventure, and she starred opposite Elvis in Girls, 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 a film she detested. Very interesting career, though. Check out our notes for a full appreciation of all the stuff she did, like play a deaf moot in an episode of Bonanza directed by Robert Altman. Crazy. Cinematographer Oliver Wood died at the age of 80. His big break, well, his big first film was Honeymoon Killers, a classic cult movie. But his commercial breakthrough came when he joined Miami Vice as the DP in its fourth and fifth seasons. I didn't think at that stage you would gain attention, but Hollywood saw his work and liked it. And soon he was doing Die Hard 2 and Face Off among his best movies, The Bourne Trilogy with Matt Damon, for which Wood did not ever get an Oscar nomination, which is shocking. Freaky Friday with Jamie Lee Curtis, Talladega Nights, and the classic sports film Rudy. New Orleans legend Huey Piano Smith is dead at 89. He started rock and roll. Actor Richard Belzer of Law and Order and all the Law and Orders, he is dead at 78. The fact is, he got too close to the truth about who killed JFK, and so they killed him. It's true. Really? No? Yeah, okay. Well, he loved conspiracy theories. He was a great stand-up comic, and he played the character Detective John Munch on 10 different TV shows. That's a record, as is the fact that Belzer played that character over a 23-year span. If the reboot of Frasier happens, and they're filming it now, Kelsey Grammer will have to play Frasier for another five years just to beat that record. So that record, uh, that will fall at some point, I guess. But playing Detective John Munch, one character on 10 different TV shows, that's going to stand a long time. And finally, Emmy winner Gerald Fry died at 95. He won the Emmy for Roots, but he made the most money off of scoring episodes of Gilligan's Island because that show played forever in syndication and he made money every time it played. He did a great episode of Star Trek called A Mock Time. That was where Spock went into heat. You know, and he had that big fight scene and stuff. You know, he went crazy. Uh, you probably can hear the score in your head right now. But his big thing was Roots. Quincy Jones was hired to do the score, but the producers got worried because Jones kind of was missing the deadlines. I'm like, we need to be ready for January. The, the thing is going to air. And they freaked out and they called up Gerald Fried and said, all right, stand by and just shut up and don't tell anybody. They didn't want to tell Quincy Jones either, but eventually they're like, we need more score. And so... The music of Quincy Jones dominated the first hour of Roots. That was the first two hours were set in Africa. That was where the Quincy Jones score was heard throughout the entire first two hours, that first night of television. And I think, I'm sure he did the theme song. And then for the other 10 hours, that was Gerald Fried. <laughs> so he did 10 hours, but they shared the Emmy for best score. And uh, it's certainly a capper to a cool career. 
Well, and this that's the capper for this week's show. Uh, in in fact, uh, I'd like to thank Richard, by the way, for writing into dirt at showbizsandbox.com. Yes, thank D-I-R-T. you very much. Good, good point. Good point about yes. about breaking the contract and saying, all right, we don't have to make any more Yellowstone episodes. We can just make uh, Purple Stone. You know, we'll call it Purple yeah. Stone. <laughs> what if we made Yellowstone, but with a bear named uh, I don't know? Uh, give me give, give me some name. Yogi, Gentle, Yogi. Yeah, yeah. Gentle Ben. Oh, oh, okay. Gen- Yogi yeah, Bear, okay. of course. Well, if you don't want to miss next week's episode, uh, subscribe to us on iTunes, the Google Podcast Store, Microsoft Marketplace, Stitcher, Spotify, iTunes. I think I, I mentioned that. Um, tune in uh, anywhere they give podcasts away for free. I, I've, I've lost track of all of them. That's usually where you can find us. And in some cases, rate and review us. It helps us out when you do that. Uh, links to all of the stories we've discussed on today's episode, as well as those ways to follow us or ways to contact us. Those can be found on showbizsandbox.com, our website. I, we mentioned how you can write to us. You can call us at 888-567-SAND. That's 888-567-7263. We're on Twitter where our handle is at showbizsandbox. We're also on Facebook, facebook.com slash showbizsandbox is where you can like our page. The music that you hear at the beginning and end of each show is by the popular indie rock group MGMT, and they can be found on their own website, whoismgmt.com. Michael Gilt has a website, and every week it's something new and exciting. What is it this week, Michael? Oh, my God. The New York Times just put out their evening briefing. We are recording late today, but my website is themaverick'sband.com because they're a great band, and you should check them out. They're touring all over right now. And you know what? If you have trouble finding any of Michael's coverage of the entertainment industry there, why not head on over to michaelgilt's.com, where all of his work can be found. My work can be found on celluloidjunkie.com. Until next week. Play nice. One hour and 20 minutes. Not bad considering all the stuff we covered. True. I thought it was going to go be like two hours and 20 minutes. <laughs>